Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to a special episode of Experts Only. Today, we are speaking with the legendary Dr. Michael Mann, a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State, and also the director of Penn State Earth Science Center. If you follow climate and climate science and climate science issues, uh, you've got to know Dr. Mann. He was help, he helped sort of publish the original hockey stick theory in the UN report in 2001 that drove a lot of the conversation that we have today around climate and as a result became a target of a lot of the folks in the climate denying community uh, and helped has helped lead the pushback on not just the science but the politics and the advocacy and the solutions that will help us solve our climate challenges. He's written several books. You can find them at michaelman.net including The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines, The Madhouse Effect with fellow Buffalonian Tom Tolles, including a children's book, The Tantrum That Saved the, the World. He's a co-founder of the award-winning science website, realclimate.org. Look forward to the conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining us at Experts Only. Uh, thank you. It's great to be with you. You know, you've lived at this intersection of science and advocacy in a way that's that's really amazing and unique. And I, I do want to get into all that, but I do want to step back and just, you know, how did you first get interested in, in atmospheric science? And, you know, what sort of led you down that, uh, the path of science? Yeah, so um, I was, I knew, you know, from my earliest years, my earliest days that I, you know, really enjoyed the, the world of science. Uh, sort of figuring out how things work um, and had a proclivity for math and science in high school. Uh, went off to UC Berkeley to double major in applied math and physics um, in 1984 and uh, ultimately uh, ended up uh, beginning my PhD in uh, theoretical physics at Yale University. A few years in, I'd passed all my exams, taken all my classes and, and was ready to do my PhD research and realized that I wasn't that excited about the projects right. that I was being you know, given to, to work on. And so I literally had, you know, a, uh, a crisis of scientific identity in a sense, um, started flipping through the, the, the Yale catalog of, uh, of science and applied science, looking for, you know, other opportunities, um, other researchers where I could use math and physics to work on a problem that seemed really, you know, fascinating to me that would, uh, you know, that uh, that I could be passionate about and saw that there was a uh, scientist in uh, professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics uh, who was using math and physics to study Earth's climate system. Um, hmm. And that sounded fascinating uh, to me. One thing led to another. Um, I, I ended up working with him that summer and then decided to stay on and do my PhD with him in the Department of Geology and Geophysics uh, on climate modeling and uh, analyzing climate data. And that led me down the path that ultimately uh, would result in the now uh, you know, famous hockey stick curve. Uh, yeah. But it all started, uh, really, it all started out with um, almost a, a, a random and, uh, <clears throat> you know, just sort of uh, you know, a, a, a random decision. 
yeah. um, to um, to pursue that particular opportunity. It, so in that research, as you're getting into that, and uh, that's that's fascinating, by the way. And, and we we talked to a lot of different guests who end up in these these careers that was ne- never intended. I mean, I was I was an elementary education major, uh, working in ah, okay. finance now. So um, so. Was there a point along the way when you were, you were doing your research, you know, whether it be leading up to the hockey stick uh, work that came out of the UN report or others that there was sort of a light bulb moment on climate change or was it sort of a gradual chip away that you said, oh, this is going to be not just my life's work, but a generational fight that we need to address? Yeah. So great question. Um, you know, when I first pursued the, the, the work, the paleoclimate work that led to the hockey stick curve. Uh, the inspiration for that work actually wasn't climate change. My PhD research wasn't really focused on climate change. It was actually focused primarily on understanding natural climate variability, natural Hmm. cycles. And so it was the uh, interest, our interest in uh, understanding long-term natural cycles that uh, led to me um, uh, analyzing these so-called proxy records, these paleoclimate uh, archives like tree rings and and corals and ice cores, because they can take us farther back in time. Uh, The instrumental record is confined really only to the last century and a half, roughly. And if we want to understand how the climate varies on longer timescales, we have to turn to these alternative uh, natural archives that we call climate proxy data. And so my interest in those data was to be in a position to better identify these very long-term natural cycles, uh, but in the sort of course of using these data to reconstruct past climate patterns, we were ultimately uh, led to this conclusion that the work really did have profound implications for the issue of human-caused climate change. Uh, The hockey stick curve that resulted from that work demonstrated that the recent warming that we've seen really is unprecedented as far back as we can go. And that obviously had um, some pretty deep implications for the larger societal discourse and and debate, often a very contentious debate. Um, uh, This was in the late 1990s. We published the original hockey stick curve in 1998 and a follow-up study in 1999. Um, At this time, climate change was becoming increasingly uh, politically contentious. And uh, we, you know, published this work at sort of a, uh, you know, at at that pivotal moment where uh, climate change was rising to the level of, you know, being one of the the most contentious, uh, you know, societal issues that we've ever had to deal with. And so it was sort of, if you like, a perfect storm of this work being published um, just as the the climate debate, no pun uh, intended, was really heating up, was really heating up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in preparation, I sort of went back and looked at the nature uh, article you wrote in, in 1988, and of course the, the yeah. work in uh, the UN report that sort of you know really began to maybe for lack of a better term institutionalize the hockey stick. And for folks that that aren't aware, you should go to Michael's website, which is michaelband.net, and you can find the series of books and articles that sort of led up to the the, the work we're at today. One thing we talk about a lot in the the, the show, and I fully believe we're, we're actually living in a climate moment. If you take the work that you did really starting over 20 years ago, uh, the UN reports, obviously Al Gore's work on Inconvenient Truth. And then, you know, we hit the the possibility of a climate piece of legislation in, in you know, 2000, 2012, 2013. And of course, when that, I'm sorry, 2008, 2009. 
And when that sort of yeah. fumbled, right, because the politics right. were, for a whole series of reasons, went away. There was a moment in Washington where, when I was working in the Pentagon, you couldn't even say the word climate change. Yeah. Right now we're, right. we've got the amazing Greta going in front of our, our folks here in Washington, uh, or yeah. in Washington, and actually pointing this, the science in a new way again, right? And saying, look, this is not, yeah. not up for debate anymore. It, you've lived that entire spectrum. How do you sort of view yeah. sort of where we are today on not so much the politics, I'm going to get to the politics and advocacy, but in terms yeah. of the sort of the science discussion uh, around these issues? Yeah, yeah. so um, in, in, indeed, this is the sort of one of the central topics in the book that I'm working on right now, which is sort of uh, about the evolution of the climate change debate. And you, you alluded to one critical factor that is really sort of um, leading to a, a pretty dramatic shift. In, in this discussion, um, and it's the the youth climate movement and, and Greta Thunberg and and her uh, you know the, her, the other um, youth uh, climate protesters who have really helped recenter this debate on issues of intergenerational ethics. Um, you know, this isn't just about right. science and and the economics and, and policy analysis. It's about the the future of the planet. What sort of world we want to leave behind for our children, grandchildren, and so. The, at the at the risk of overusing the metaphor, um, I, I think this is another example of a perfect storm where you had the the rise of the youth climate uh, movement at the same time that we've had these um, absolutely unprecedented extreme weather events, you know, superstorms, wildfires, floods, heat waves uh, that you know play out in real time on our television screens and our newspaper headlines and our social media feeds, and have really sort of elevated um, uh, climate change uh, to, you know, the, the, the public awareness of, of climate change. This isn't just about polar bears way off in the Arctic. Um, it's about disasters that are playing out in real time and doing real damage and destruction and, and causing, you know, in some cases, uh, massive loss of life. Uh, right. the, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. And so we've seen that come together with the youth climate movement um, and also, frankly, the, um, the, the, the sort of evolving politics um, uh, when, you know, people like AOC, you know, uh, were brought into office in the midterm election, uh, and there was this huge influx of young legislators who are passionate about this issue. And it led to, for example, the, you know, advancement uh, of uh, the Green New Deal, which, and now we're getting into the politics of this, right. um, which, you know, my view is we may not see ultimately the passage uh, uh, through Congress of anything that looks like the Green New Deal. But what it's done is dramatically move the window of discourse where conservatives are recognizing that if they don't you know, get away from the, the stale and outmoded debate about whether climate change is real and join the meaningful conversation about what we do about it, they may, they may uh, get left behind at the station. They may be left with a heavy-handed regulatory approach to dealing with the problem that is anathema to them ideologically. And so that's actually, ironically, bringing uh, at least some conservatives to the table now who are advancing sort of uh, climate solutions that are consistent with their political ideology. And, and to me, that's a good development. It's a, it's a critical development uh, because 
there's a worthy debate to be had about climate policy. There isn't a worthy debate to be had about whether climate change is real, human-caused, and a problem. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I feel like, you know, post-President Trump's withdrawal from, from Paris, Right. You know, the, the, if there's a positive that came out of that, you had, uh, you know, 60 of the Fortune 100 stand up and put in place renewable energy goals. You have a cultural yep. revolution underway that's forcing and holding accountable folks towards those efforts, whether or not the you know current Republican leadership in Washington wants it or not. You've got millennials right. in that party driving yep. change in a way that that's never existed before. And, and regardless of the quote unquote deniers yep. that have been fighting us for so long on these issues, you know, now the question is, you know, how do we navigate without the federal government for the time being, and hopefully soon, you know, with the federal government, some real solutions to move ahead. So, yeah, absolutely. I I see it as a very exciting time. Some people see it pessimistically. They look at the fact that we have a climate change denying president and um, no, you know, meaningful climate legislation on the horizon right now. But, you know, we've got a (laughs) major uh, election now, the presidential right. election in, in in about a year, and uh, we could see um, a real opportunity for, for progress on this issue in, in a relatively short uh, period of time if people get out and vote and vote on this issue um, and, and make their voices yeah. heard. Uh, there's a real opportunity here. I mean, we saw this summer for the, you know, the first time actual climate uh, de- debates happening within town halls, whether it's yeah. cheer that many of us want, I'm not sure, but the fact that that's even happening yeah. is, is a stride. So yeah. this gets us to the politics. And I do want to, you know, you know, make sure to say, point out that you become a real champion and advocate on, on how to communicate these issues, which really for a lot of folks in the science community, isn't a standard practice, right? They're, they're they do their work and they, you know, want the facts to prove out. Uh, but you've seen firsthand, I mean, even to the level of getting death threats, right, how yeah. the, the importance of politics here. When, when yeah. did that really, I mean, the hockey stick of the climate wars outlines it in a, in a, a book format. But, you know, what was yeah. the personal growth there that you realized that it wasn't just enough to do the homework? Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, it's, I, I suppose the, the seed was planted in me. Um, very early on, uh, I was a, a big fan of Carl Sagan. I, I learned oh, right. about science. I learned to love science from watching um, the uh, Cosmos uh, series back in the uh, you know in the early 1980s. Um, <clears throat> got me excited about science, and 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 Carl Sagan became you know sort of a uh, a role model uh, to me. And 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 Sagan was perhaps the first scientist at least, uh, you know, in recent generations, um, the first sort of public figure scientist, a scientist who not only did science, but left the ivory tower um, in the laboratory uh, to communicate the science to the public and and policymakers. And he wasn't afraid to weigh in um, when he saw policy relevance to the science that he and others were doing, and of course, um, played a, a critical role in raising awareness about nuclear winter in the mid-1980s. And ultimately, his efforts uh, led to uh, the de-escalation between, uh, the, at the time, the Soviet Union uh, uh, under Gorbachev and, and uh, the U.S. under Ronald Reagan, and, and, and it led to a treaty um, to um, 
to de-escalate uh, uh, nuclear arms. Um, so, you know, I suppose I had that seed planted in me early on, the notion that there is a role for scientists to play in the larger public discourse to inform, um, you know, critical areas of policy that, that are informed, that, that, are, that, that must be informed by science. And so, but it, there was another sort of critical component there. I, despite that, I don't think I would have pursued such a path if it were not for the sort of specifics, my own journey, um, right. which I've alluded to already when we published the hockey stick in the late 1990s. And this became sort of like an iconic symbol in the climate change debate. And I found myself at the center of these larger efforts to undermine the uh, public confidence in the science, uh, to attack the science, to attack scientists uh, like myself. And so I found myself uh, at the center of efforts by, you know, fossil fuel industry groups and the various organizations, think tanks, front groups, um, and paid advocates that they support who, you know, were really focusing um, uh, their, um, their attacks on uh, the effort to discredit the iconic hockey stick curve, uh, right? You know, the, this this under the sort of cynical viewpoint that if they could just discredit this one graph, that somehow the entire weight of evidence for human-caused climate change would come right. crashing down like a house of cards, which isn't right. the way science works. Uh, there are many independent, you know, uh, pillars of evidence for climate change, and it wouldn't have really mattered whether or not we'd ever published the hockey stick. But because it was a potent symbol, they you know, uh, felt that if they could discredit that symbol, they could claim to discredit um, the entire case for concern. And so whether I liked it or not, um, I had either, I had to choose, was I going to retreat into the laboratory and, and shun the exposure uh, or would I embrace it? And uh, needless to say, I, I chose the latter. And I suppose it was sort of part of my constitution to not right. back down from a worthy fight, a worthy battle. It's pro probably, you know, ingrained in my personality. Um, and um, so those things, I think, came together. And then I recognized uh, that I had an opportunity to play a critical role in this conversation about what is arguably the greatest challenge we've ever faced as a civilization. And I feel absolutely privileged to be in a position to do that, even though it's not what I signed up for. I would have been perfectly happy being left alone in the laboratory, <laughs> crunching numbers, running models. You know, that's why I got into science. That's what right. I love doing. Um, but, but no regrets. You yeah. know, this has created an, a, 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 an opportunity for me to play a larger role, and I've embraced that. So, you know, with that in mind, I mean, I think I'm glad you've embraced it and you've really become a champion. And, you know, I recently interviewed Anthony Lizowitz from, from Yale. It talks, you know, his communications yeah. efforts around the program. You know, I'm actually on the board of the Environmental Defense Fund Action, EDF's action group trying to advocate more. Yeah. How do we, right. as, a, as a movement, you know, we don't have an American Petroleum Institute for climate right. or renewables, right? We've got a bunch of desperate, right. or maybe disparate is a better term, um, <laughs> organizations that, you know, don't do a great job of sort of centralizing their support yeah. and giving someone like you the cover in need, right, to keep pushing these forward. What, what do we need as a movement now uh, or do you see it sort of coming together that there there is yeah. sort of a centralized focus to drive our you know policies forward? Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I do. Um, there is an asymmetry in this battle. Right. One side has massive amounts of money and can hire the top strategists and can basically have essentially unlimited uh, funds at their disposal to 
you know, manufacture the this this massive disinformation campaign that is the campaign to uh, deny climate change and or delay, at the very least, action on climate, which is sort of where we are now. Outright denial has become increasingly difficult uh, because the, the evidence is just too plain to see to the person on the street. And so exactly. and this is this, this book that I'm working on, you know, uh, the, winning the new climate war is about the, the evolving nature of, of the climate war as it moves away from outright denial of the science and on to sort of other um, uh, equally uh, pernicious and, and, and nefarious you know, ways of trying to maintain the status quo, keep us, keeping us addicted to fossil fuels, blocking efforts to decarbonize our economy. Um, so, so my feeling is that despite, you know, the fact that we, uh, that there is this massive disparity in terms of the level of organization and, and, and resources and, and funds, uh, yeah. the, the fossil fuel industry, the most powerful um, wealthiest industry on the face of the earth on one side, and a bunch of scientists and environmentalists and, 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 and other folks who don't have those sorts of resources. Um, but we do have a secret weapon, and that's scientific truth. Um, right. and, uh, and I like to think that that still matters, even in the fact-challenged atmosphere that we now find ourselves, the era of fake news, uh, true fake news, um, disinformation, industry-funded disinformation posing as news uh, and alternative facts, um, that, you know, that represents a challenge. Uh, that having been said, you know, what we've seen as a response to the bad faith assault on science, um, 10 years ago, the, the climate gate uh, affair, literally of course. Um, yeah. to the day, to the day almost, um, this effort by fossil fuel interests to use stolen emails to try to misrepresent and discredit scientists to create sort of doubt going into the, the critical 2009 uh, Copenhagen summit. Um, well, you know, as the forces of denial and delay have become increasingly desperate, <laughs> I'll use that word, in their efforts to uh, block action on climate, they, their methods have become increasingly underhanded in, in a way that has antagonized and mobilized a sleeping giant. You know, scientists right. as a whole are not activists. They prefer to just be left alone doing their science. But because of the assault on science, uh, by climate change deniers, fossil fuel interests who've been sort of sowing this, um, you know, um, who have been uh, attempting to manufacture fake controversy and mislead the public and, and policymakers on this issue. You've seen scientists rise up, and especially the younger generation of scientists who have grown up sort of in the social media world um, and are very media savvy and, and are very passionate about not just doing the science, but communicating it and fighting back against, you know, uh, intentional distortions of the science. And so we have this sort of army <laughs> of younger scientists who are really passionate uh, about um, not just the science, but the science of science communication. And, um, and that, frankly, is one of the things that I, uh, that makes me optimistic um, that, uh, you know, they're using, this generation is using its talents. Um, to communicate in novel new ways uh, to find uh, and, and the forces of denial and delay are having a really hard time fighting back against them because um, they're just not they're not trained in sort of right. the, 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 the modern day uh, methods of uh, communication. 
Are you, um, are there any specific sort of uh, next generation leaders you see coming up uh, in the science community at, at, I think about like Lee Stokes on, on Twitter or some others that are out there that are, you know, obviously have the tools behind them professionally, but then are also doing the, you know, the work that you've, I think, led with, which is uh, communicating these issues out there people should be paying attention to? Yeah, you mentioned uh, Leah. Absolutely. She is right, um, you know, in that group. Uh, Jesse Jenkins, who is now at Princeton, I believe. Um, and, and, and these are sort of folks in the policy arena, but they're also some um, younger uh, climate scientists as well. Um, uh, and the names, of course, are going to escape me <laughs> right now. No, of course, um, yeah. But but uh but there there uh, there's a whole cadre of of younger uh climate scientists who are very active on the communication front um uh, on on twitter uh, uh but also um you know doing uh, interviews um and and public lectures and engaging with the media and using all of the lever arms that we have available to our uh, ourselves to uh to communicate to the public and policymakers um there, there's a whole Again, you know, I could try to uh, name uh, specific names, but there, you know, there's so many um, that sure. you know, um, you know, uh, that I, I, I wouldn't be able to to name them all. Um, there, there's a whole generation of scientists who see their role uh, as a scientist in, in a in a different way um, from the generation that I was part of, um, where you know, science is not it's not uh, is not finished. Um, with the submission, uh, with the publication of a peer-reviewed article, uh, science isn't finished until it's communicated to the public and policymakers. And you know, and that's not the view of every single scientist, and it shouldn't be. There are scientists who, you know, that isn't their forte. Uh, that isn't, you know, um, their strength. But um, but there are a whole bunch of scientists now who have the proclivity and, and interest in, in uh, participating in the larger uh, discussion, public discussion, and. You know, that combined with the youth climate movement and the shifting politics on this issue uh, are, are reasons for cautious optimism, despite all of the, you know, hurdles and challenges that we still face. So one more to add into a chapter for your next book is, is actually the, the, the market mechanisms that are beginning to move into climate. Uh, you have yeah. real serious <laughs> capital investors like BlackRock and others uh, who are following the the leadership of series, you know, we do got to get to a trillion dollars a year, you know, yeah. energy investments to even two degree, you know, we're about a $350 million today. How do we, how do we quadruple that? Um, this is what we work at yeah. in capital, but there's a lot of folks in this space that the tides are turning and we're seeing real capital move to, to really accelerate the solutions that, that are real and in front of us that they're, they're no yep. longer, they're no longer, uh, uh, a wish list of stuff we need to do. We know we have to do. Before we close, yeah, I'm yeah, glad. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, um, you know, over the last uh, couple of years, I have um, participated in a number of conferences with uh, finance uh, leaders from the finance community. And to me, that's really exciting that the world of finance sees itself as playing a major role um, in, in, in this transition. And, you know, they're not granola crunching, you know, uh, environmentalists. These these are you know people from the business world who nonetheless uh, you know recognize that if we allow you know our, our, our planetary environment to be destroyed, if we uh, you know permit unchecked climate change, um, it's going to hurt your bottom line. You know, no matter uh, who you are, uh, whether you're an individual or a company or a corporation, 
you know, uh, planetary degradation is going to create a very bad business environment. Um, And and the finance community recognizes, or at least there's an enlightened, you know, uh, segment within that community that recognizes that and is taking a a leadership role. And, and, and I want to thank you for, for being part of, you know, that, that effort to, to mobilize that community on this issue. No, I appreciate that. I, I, um, you know, I'll say as a green new deal came out, I sort of, uh, helped articulate a piece on why Wall Street's actually ready to finance this and, and ready to go. Yeah. It doesn't have to be government dollars to get it to get yeah. it done. So I want to ask you sort of a, a final question. I ask all, all my uh, all my guests, and if you could go back to yourself uh, when you were in Massachusetts, in Amherst, Massachusetts, getting ready to yeah. to go off to school, and you could sit down and and grab a coffee or have a beer with yourself. What what piece of advice would you give yourself? You know, I would. I, it would be to follow your heart. You know, oh, scientists. <laughs> Those of us who are trained in science and mathematics, it's tempting to think of life as just something that you map out, <laughs> almost right. like a, you know, an equation. Um, and so people are sometimes surprised when I say that. But um, when it comes to you know, our larger role in society and being part of an effort to do something important to preserve our planetary environment, you know, I think it's important to, to you know, not just think with our minds, but think with our, our heart, uh, what feels right, um, what, what feels like the right thing for me to be doing with my life. Um, I asked that critical question during the, the, the sort of the, the heat of all the attacks uh, against me. Um, right. Um, early on in my career, I had to do some soul searching. In the end, I decided, as I alluded to before, that what felt right to me was to embrace this as an opportunity, even though it was going to take me in a completely different direction from the one I, I thought I had mapped out when I double majored in applied math and physics <laughs> at UC Berkeley and went off right. to Yale University to study theoretical physics. I didn't think that path was going to lead me. Um, I couldn't have imagined that it would lead me to where I am, but I have no regrets. And and in the end, you know, I, I listened to my heart and, and that's what I think we, we need to do sometimes. Dr. Michael Mann, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your leadership on these issues. Uh, right back at you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was an honor to have Dr. Michael Mann on our show. Uh, you can find more of his writings at michaelmann.net. He's got a series of books that should be in all of our bookshelves as we look to really solve our climate change challenges. I want to thank our producers, uh, Nicole Waddington, and the hard work that she's put in prepping for these interviews, as well as Carly Batten. You can find more episodes at cleancapital.com. And as always, please submit your thoughts for future guests, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.